You're listening to Dental Talk from VivaLearning.com. Welcome to Dental Talk. I'm Dr. Phil Klein. Typically, our podcasts involve a discussion between myself and a KOL or subject matter expert. But for this episode series with Dr. John Molinari, we have created three 30-minute segments, which are excerpts from his recent infection control presentation. This episode, part two of three, addresses COVID-19, masks, N95 respirators, face shields, eyewear protection, airborne contamination, HVAC and air exchanges in the office, engineering controls, and biological monitoring. Each of the three episodes covers relevant information that directly pertains to things you should be aware of regarding your infection control protocol in your dental office. In light of the pandemic, Dr. Molinari, one of the most respected experts in infection control in hospital, clinic, and dental office settings, covers the latest guidelines to practicing safely and in ways that will bode well in front of an OSHA inspector. Please welcome Dr. John Molinari. Well, good afternoon. My name is John Molinari. I'm a microbiologist. I've been asked by uh, Cycant, Coltine Cycant, to present this on infection control during and after COVID-19. Universal precautions with modified and upgraded, if you will, to standard precautions. This started in 1991 with the uh, blood bone pathogen standard that came out through OSHA uh, and uh, continued to evolve up through 1996. Uh, and this not only involved universal precautions for bloodborne pathogens, but also introduced these body substance isolation or transmission precautions, looking at the fact that organisms could be transmitted from moist body surfaces and other body fluids other than than blood. These transmission precautions are a very important second tier of infection control to standard precautions. And hospitals have been using these transmission precautions for many, many years now. And I'll show you some of this in a little bit. You have been using aspects of this you haven't necessarily called them contact precautions or, or droplet precautions. And you see that there are three of them here. There's contact precautions, use of patients who have uh, infections or suspected infections where uh, touching a patient or contact with skin could transmit microbial pathogens, methicillin-resistant staph aureus, vancomycin-resistant enterococcus, uh, C. diff, uh, et cetera. These types of precautions are for contact. And I'll talk about the other two as we get up there. This is what you would see as an example in a hospital for contact precautions. A patient, for example, that had MRSA or a C. diff patient, you would see on the door to the room contact precautions. Now, obviously, hand hygiene, hand washing or, or waterless products, uh, gloves, gown, etc., disposable gown or, or reusable gown, etc., that had to be discarded. But this was contact. The gloves were a big thing here. You had been doing it already because of hepatitis B, but you were routinely wearing gloves. When you look at droplet and airborne precautions, now you get into another realm. You get into a realm where you're looking at material that is coming out in droplets from sources, uh, respiratory sources, uh, patients' mouths, such as in dental uh, procedures. And here you have three terms, spatter, droplets, large droplets, if you will, and aerosols. Spatter settles closer to the source individual, 
while aerosols travel further from the source individual. We're gonna talk about this. Let's look at the first, spatter. You perform dental procedures. Uh, many of your procedures uh, generate spatter out of the patient's mouth. These are these large, large droplets that come out. Uh, they're very visible and they come out very rapidly, larger than 50 microns. And when they come out of a patient's mouth, for example, they behave in a ballistic manner. It's almost like a bullet. And they come out very rapidly, but they settle quickly because they're so large. And they can contact the floor or clothing from people that are close to them. What happens with spatter is that uh, a large percentage of it can be settling. But as it's settling, it's evaporating. And it forms these smaller particles, these large droplets. And these larger droplets can transmit infections for people that are close to it. Influenza, whooping cough, the original SARS. The overwhelming amount of evidence is showing that SARS-CoV-2 is also transmitted by these droplets. You look at these droplets, as I said, they're intermediate in size between spatter and aerosols. They tend to quickly settle out. They're smaller than 50 microns, but they're larger than five microns. And so what happens is they typically settle out close to the droplet source, within about three feet to so, maybe a little bit longer, and shows a short-range transmission of potential infection. We've seen this, for example, uh, present dental risks. For example, there was a study done in the mid-1980s at, uh, I believe, four or five large medical centers in the Midwest that showed that in hospital settings, uh, dental hygienists had the highest incidence of influenza, seasonal flu, and colds of any group. Now, you would think, well, by then they were all wearing masks. Yeah, but if you remember, a lot of people were wearing masks, but they were wearing them below their nose or they, they weren't wearing them right. And so we saw that uh, that close contact that dental professionals had could lead to these, this droplet infection, such as seasonal influenza. That, of course, is where you have droplet precautions, where you have precautions to protect against these large respiratory droplets that can be uh, coming out of a person's mouth through, from dental procedures, coughing, sneezing, talking, even breathing. And here's what you see, for example, in the hospitals. And notice the difference now. You not only have hand hygiene, you have gloves, of course, but you also have masks. You also have masks. And that's important. You have your surgical masks. And these will filter out these large droplet particles uh, for a couple of feet, obviously, because you as dental professionals are much closer, and hand hygiene, et cetera. Now, what we're looking at from COVID is that we have further evaporation of the spatter and droplets that are expelled into the air. And you can get over periods of time for a small airborne particle called aerosols, which are capable now of being transmitted over greater distances, which can still contain viable infectious microorganisms. We've seen aerosol infections uh, clinically. Tuberculosis is a classic with droplet nuclei, measles, one of the most infectious viral infections out there can, can be transmitted uh, extended distances and remain uh, viable uh, with viruses for up to two hours. Uh, Chickenpox, varicella can also be transmitted by these small particles. These particles, also referred to as droplet nuclei, 
form from evaporation of the larger droplets, and they're much smaller. And depending on how many droplets are out there, they can form a higher percentage of aerosols. As the droplets are also settling, you can also form more aerosols. And because they're so small, they can remain airborne and float in the air for extended periods and distances, longer than six feet. And depending on the air currents, uh, they can remain for extended periods of time. As I said, uh, measles virus can remain suspended in these aerosols for up to two hours. And SARS-CoV-2 uh, has been detected in droplets, these, these small aerosols in the air for uh, extended periods of time. Of course, in dentistry, you have aerosol generating procedures from hand pieces, ultrasonic scalers, or air water syringes, which you have to be careful of. And so here is where now dentistry has been asked to utilize what you can for airborne precautions. And you see what the hospitals have had and where you have been asked now to accomplish what you can in your outpatient dental practice setting. Not only do you have hand hygiene, gloves, N95 respirators, or analogous respirators to that. You have air exchanges that you have to be careful of. This is where you've had to increase the uh, uh, air circulation uh, in the room to clean the rooms out. This is different from droplet precautions. What you're asked to do now, of course, is a combination of droplet and airborne precautions. And that is where the updated guidelines have come out with. When we look at specifically how SARS-CoV-2 is transmitted, uh, the CDC has some excellent references, by the way. Uh, this is uh, information from a couple of these put together. Obviously, you know, SARS-CoV-2 can be very easily transmitted person to person, uh, much more efficiently spread than uh, influenza. It has an R naught factor, a transmissibility factor of about five to seven. Influenza is about one to 1.5. Measles is 16 to 18. See how infectious that is. And the overwhelming majority of the data suggests and indicate that um, SARS-CoV-2 most commonly spreads uh, through close personal contact from the droplets. That's where we have the six foot social distancing, et cetera, with the masking. However, there is increasing evidence of airborne transmission of SARS-CoV-2, these small droplets that can remain suspended in the air for extended periods of time and pass infections from greater than six feet away. Uh, we've seen outbreaks in closed spaces, inadequate ventilation that allow accumulation of the aerosols. We've seen things with, with choir rehearsals, church services, rallies, uh, parties inside, uh, all, all sorts of in, in, indoor activities where there's a lot of people and transmission uh, has occurred over great distances. I'm gonna talk later on about uh, spread from contact surfaces uh, that is not thought to be a, a, a common mode of viral spread. Basically, we're looking at the primary spread of SARS-CoV-2 is from these respiratory droplets, the larger droplets, but there is increasing evidence for a role for aerosol transmission. We just don't know what that percentage is, but we do have to take those precautions. Uh, this is a recent example to show uh, how this virus can be spread in these enclosed spaces. This, this was published by the CDC uh, just about a week or so ago, uh, where they had a, a gym in Chicago that had people taking a class, and they wound up having, I believe, 55 people come down with COVID. Uh, they had people attending the classes uh, who were asymptomatic uh, and who were spreading it. It was a large group, and this reinforces the fact that you have to be careful in public settings where people are 
very close to each other and you have these large groups and we still have that potential problem. So what do you do? Well, let's look at a couple of things. Uh, when OSHA came out with their original booklet in uh, the end of March at the beginning of the pandemic of last year, God, I can't believe it's been a year already, uh, uh, over a year. Uh, they talk about a hierarchy of controls. Uh, let's, let's look at PPE, personal protective equipment. You who are employers, uh, you, you know, of course, that you're responsible for providing PPE, uh, cleaning and laundering gowns, replacing PPE, et cetera. We know that uh, personal protective equipment, the major components of standard precautions, uh, they work. They work. One of the things that has happened, of course, is we've seen evolution of PPE. Uh, but one of the things I want to talk about is right here. I know you're wearing gloves, but one of the concerns that I've seen uh, over the years and I've talked with some of you about is uh, some of the problems that you're having from wearing gloves. One of the things that some of you are experiencing is because you are using ambidextrous gloves, your hand in the natural position when you hold that at side like this, when you put the ambidextrous gloves on, is like this. You'll notice how the uh, thumb is pushed closer to the palm, which is a natural, non-neutral position, and your hand tries to get back to neutral position, but the elasticity of the glove pulls it back. Over months and years, this can cause muscle fatigue, muscle stress, muscle damage, nerve damage, carpal tunnel syndrome. One of the choices that I remember uh, that was out there from people that I learned from years ago was to use right and left fitted non-surgical gloves that are made of mandrels like this. And you see when you put a fitted glove on, notice how the natural position of your hand remains the same. And people use these, some of you may be using them and you love them and that's great. What has also happened is in recent years, we've had some evolutions in glove technology where we have now a type of glove material called chloroprene. And some of you may be using chloroprene gloves. Uh, these gloves work. They have to meet the same criteria as all the other glove materials. And they're on ambidextrous mandrels that they're made. But one of the nice things about chloroprene is that when you move your thumb to try to get back to the natural position, the material stretches. And so it doesn't force your thumb back to the unnatural position. And so that also helps with that muscle fatigue and stress and possible damage. This was first seen, by the way, at hygienists uh, years ago because of repetitive hand movements, awkward wrist positions during uh, hygiene procedures. But of course, it's dentists, dental assistants as well. And uh, there are things that you can do to correct it. When you look at uh, masks, uh, obviously we know this is, this is, a, this is an airborne disease, droplet mediated, possibly by aerosols as well. Of course, we have so many other potential uh, respiratory issues that we have to deal with. Uh, you have adapted so well to different levels of masks. Uh, here you see uh, ASTM level one, two, and three, American Society for Testing Material Standards. Uh, I typically uh, prefer the level three mask. To me, that's, that's a very, very good all-purpose mask for uh, any sort of aerosolization procedure, long, long procedures, crown preps, uh, even, ev even using lasers. Uh, I know people use sometimes uh, low-level masks uh, for patient exams, et cetera, things where you're not going to be uh, generating aerosols or, uh, or aerosol-generating procedures. But you see here the differences between these. 
level three masks hold up very well to splash and spatter. Uh, we did studies on these things on mannequins, and you see here a level one mask, which is very thin, uh, just uh, having a five to 10 second exposure uh, to uh, high-speed handpiece uh, material uh, showed that it failed within about two minutes. And this was at five to 10 second burst. A level three mask, uh, 15 minutes, still nothing came through. Excellent masks. However, when you're looking at COVID-19 and SARS-CoV-2, this is where we now have the airborne precautions and that's where we don't use a surgical mask, we use the N95 respirators. And you are very well familiar with this. As I said, I'm so proud of you guys, how you've been responding. Understanding that N95 respirators take care of particles that are much smaller than the larger droplet particles and splashes and sprays. The N95s take care of the small uh, aerosolized particles the five microns or less. The key for them, of course, is they have to be tight fitting. And this is where your fit testing requirements have come in. And you who are um, uh, employers have been responsible for your uh, respiratory protection plan, uh, providing the N95 respirators or other analogous respirators and the fit testing for that. There is also a user seal check, which is to be done each time you put one of these respirators on. This is very easy to do. You have the positive pressure check, where you put your fingers over your nose when you put it on and you exhale and it should puff out without having air come out the side and fog your glasses or anything like that to show that's a tight fit. The negative pressure check is you put your fingers over the nose, you inhale sharply, and the respirator should contract and collapse. Again, not bringing in outside air. And this is something that should be done each time you all put this on to make sure that you have the tight fit for that. You're all familiar with the various types of respirators now. Early on, you know that we had so much difficulty getting them. And it's starting to loosen up. It still drives me crazy that you had to go through the uh, drama and nonsense that you had to go through to get these. And our hospital healthcare workers had the same thing. It's getting a little bit better. Understand that these are NIOSH approved, National Institute of Occupational Safety and Health. And I had colleagues, for example, in, Can in Canada, who wound up having to go to uh, Europe, European countries, to get their respirators because they couldn't find any that, that were available here in North America. Uh, their standards of the European Union are analogous to NIOSH, and they are effective as well. They can filter down to three-tenths of a micron. That's incredible. That's very protective. Many of you are using KN95s. Uh, a number of those are uh, effective. I'm going to show you that in a little bit, but understand that there are unfortunately were counterfeits that came out early on as people were trying to take advantage of this and not all were. You can check your respirators. You probably already have, but just in case you haven't, you can go to the NIOSH website, N-I-O-S-H. You can identify as to whether the respirator that you're considering purchasing uh, is approved that has met their standards. There are very specific criteria. This website is very, very nice. It provides with information to look for, uh, testing certification number, the model number, uh, is NIOSH on the, uh, on, the, on the respirator itself or on the packaging, uh, all sorts of information that needs to be there that they use in their evaluation. You can do this. And this is, period, and this is routinely updated, by the way. I'm, I'm sorry, I forgot to mention that. It's routinely updated uh, as, as, as new products come out. 
some of you may be using something other than an N95. For example, this is an example of a, a reusable elastomeric half-face piece respirator. Other industries were using respirators uh, before dentistry. Uh, the plumbing industry, the construction industry, where they have uh, very fine particle materials uh, at, the, at these construction sites. Um, and, and, and they needed some of these good respirators to protect workers from, from breathing in these particles, not necessarily biological particles, but very, very fine uh, particles that, that could create respiratory problems. Um, this is an example of one. Uh, I, I have colleagues who, who are using this. Uh, this has a cartridge. This can be cleaned. It can be disinfected. It can be stored. It can be reused. Um, so this this is not uh, something that, that needs to be replaced as frequently as your N95 respirators. You as employers who are listening to this are responsible, and you've already done this, uh, for developing a respiratory protection plan. This requires you to do a medical surveillance of employees to make sure that they can wear respirators. Some people may have some problems uh, where they can't wear a specific N95. Fortunately, there are some other respirators that are out there. Uh, you've seen some of these uh, in the hospitals uh, where it's, it, it's much easier uh, for, for people to use these and they are reusable. Uh, you're responsible for the training and the fit testing. The annual fit testing is still uh, not uh, enforced because of the shortage. I suspect soon that, that will be changing. But you're also responsible as employers to make sure that if an employee has a problem like a rash on the skin or breathing difficulties, that uh, they get a medical evaluation to see exactly how this could be corrected. We do have a new term in dentistry. It's called universal source control. This is something that has come in from as a result of COVID. Uh, it's not universal precautions, not standard precautions, it's not contact precautions. Uh, hospitals have been doing this uh, certainly since since the beginning of the pandemic, uh, if not much longer with certain types of patients. And basically, it's the fact that everybody in the practice uh, should be wearing a mask at all times. Obviously, there are certain types of procedure masks and respirators uh, used during uh, patient care, but front desk personnel should be wearing masks or, or cloth masks throughout the day. Obviously, uh, when you're eating lunch, you're not. But there are there, there are guidelines for this, and uh, the CDC has come up with uh, recommendations for this. But basically, you're trying to protect yourself and everybody else in the practice. What about eyewear? Anyone who knows me knows that I was I was an, I, I am an absolute bug about eyes. I, I probably drove my students, faculty, and, and clinical staff at the school crazy about this, because. The eyes are the least protected part of the body. Uh, you only have two of them. They don't regenerate. They don't have any tissue coverings. So they're exposed to uh, airborne material. Uh, there are staph infections, herpes infections that could have long lasting problems. And there have been documented instances in particular in medicine where uh, people who were infected in the eyes uh, lost the sight in their eye or at least had very significant damage. When we look at eyewear, the original recommendations have been from the blood bone pathogen standard to have eyewear that was large enough to cover the eyes with side shields so you didn't have things around the side. Many of you were already using face shields before COVID, and now these have become much more prominent to protect not only the eyes, but also to protect the respirators and the masks that you're using. Uh, and there are disposable eyewear available. If you use some of these disposable eyewear products, 
make sure that they're compatible with the disinfectants that you're using. The reason why I'm saying this is uh, some of these things that are reusable, uh, that are not disposable, can be cleaned and disinfected. But depending on the active ingredients in your disinfectant, they may cause a clouding of the eyewear. And that, that's not good, of course. As I said, face shields have become much more prominent now. They are in the CDC recommendations. They are in the, uh, they are in the uh, uh, ADA recommendations, ADHA recommendations. And they, you see examples here. Certainly, they protect you. They protect the mask, the respirator. Um, that's important because we have seen people uh, using these uh, N95s, for example, uh, on longer periods of time. Uh, there are reprocessing for these techniques for these uh, respirators, but they need to be clean. If they're soiled, you can't clean them, and so you can't accomplish the basic tenant of infection control, which is cleaning before disinfection. And so people need to protect those. Uh, you may be wearing a lower-level mask over your N95 to protect the N95 from being soiled, but the face shields help quite a bit. We look then at what you're being asked to do with regard to engineering controls. And this is where I talked about the uh, isolation rooms in the hospital. And this is where dentistry has had recommendations now and you've had to make some major changes in your practices that you didn't have before. In that OSHA document that came out in March, they talked about this hierarchy of controls that I talked about here. Well, when you're looking at engineering controls, you look at the types of things that are in place, need to be in place for isolating employees from workplace hazard. This wasn't just for dentistry, by the way. Uh, go into any, any store now and you'll see a clear plastic shield uh, between you and the, and the clerk or you and the bank teller or wherever you happen to be. There's also requirements for ventilation exchanges, increasing ventilation exchanges. What you can do and what many of you have already done congratulations, is you look at first evaluating your HVAC system in your facility or having someone do that. A ventilation engineer would probably be the best person to do this because they're trained for this, to make sure that it's functioning at maximum efficiency or making sure that filters are changed, making sure that the ductwork is clean, make sure that uh, everything is, is, is working so that you're getting the uh, maximum air exchanges as required by OSHA. You then look at what you need to do to modify to increase those air exchanges, either locally, some of you have been able to build things into your facility, others of you have portable units. Understand that hospitals have been doing this for many, many years here in their hospital clean rooms, in their surgical areas. They have these, these units, as you see, this is in the, in the ceiling here, where the air goes in here, it is passed through a series of HEPA filters, and exposed to UV light to clean and destroy microbial organisms. And then it comes out this way. And so hospital systems have been using these for years. Here in dentistry, that's pretty expensive for many of you to do this. So what a number of you have done is look at some of these portable units. What I'm asking you to do is when you look at this, make sure that you ask the right questions. I've, I've talked to a lot of people in the last year and some odd about this. And it's the same message. Ask the right questions. How long has the company been in business? What type of approval do they have if they need them? Uh, where are they located? Do they have application for healthcare facilities such as yours? Have they been included in hospitals? Uh, is, is the technology 
uh, something that has been out there that has been adaptable. Looking at that, we have also seen a, a, a number of companies that have been around for years that have now expanded with these uh, portable units uh, that are really uh, collecting uh, uh, debris, spatter, if you will, droplets uh, that are coming out of patients' mouths that are at chair side. Some of these companies have been in business for uh, over 10 years. That's important information to help you understand exactly what these products do what type of usefulness they have, and also what type of data they have to show that they do accomplish what they're supposed to do. Years ago, studies showed that your HVE and rubber dam were appropriate uh, when appropriately used, uh, can reduce airborne microbial contamination by well over 90%. This was stuff that was done in Perio, oh God, well over 20 some almost 30 years ago now. And that works, and that works. Now we have HVE improvements. We have companies coming out with these. Uh, these are just some. Uh, there was the Palmero one that I showed you earlier. Here are some of the ones, uh, uh, the Relief, the Mr. Thirsty. Uh, these things work. But again, you need to get the right information to see how useful they are for your practice. See how useful they are for your practice. To cut down on the airborne contamination. And by airborne contamination, I just mean material that comes out of the patient's mouth that could become uh, droplets and airborne material. Part I want to mention here right now has to do with biological monitoring. We have had a, a slew of very, very good, very efficient uh, sterilizers come out over the years. Uh, some of these, for example, Cycan sterilizers, the Statum, the Statclave, they actually have this G4 technology where they, they can be monitored remotely. It's an internet monitoring system. You have to sign up for it if you have one of those units. Uh, other companies, I, I believe ADEC may have something like this. Point is that we're seeing more and more monitoring to help us make sure that these things are functioning properly. Of course, what you have routinely is your weekly biological monitoring, your biological spore testing, which is your gold standard. And a number of you have in-office systems, some of these portable systems uh, that can give you uh, results very quickly, 10 hours. Uh, 3M has things that actually are much shorter, uh, less than an hour, as I recall. But the fact is, you can do this very easily. A number of you also belong to sterilization monitoring services, uh, maybe as a third-party validation for your weekly monitoring periodically, and that's work. But what happens when you find a positive test? One of the things that you can do is you can actually monitor each cycle without spores and have a pretty good feeling that your sterilization cycles are functioning properly, or you can pick up an improper cycle right away. This requires the use of these class five or type five integrators. And these are different from the pouch markings on your sterilizer pouches, which uh, change color when you reach sterilization conditions, but they change color before you actually sterilize. And of course, they're much more sensitive than autoclave tape, which autoclave tape just tells you that something's been run through the sterilizer. These class five or type five integrators, here's the uh, Cycan strips. These are uh, little strips that have a uh, glassine tube on the back as part of the strip. And in there is an indicator ink. Take one of these, place them in a pouch. I like this in the same uh, conditions that you're running your regular pouch uh, wrapped instruments. So you put them in a pouch, uh, put them in the center of the load, run the cycle. 
at the end of the cycle, the ink should be over in the accept zone or the safe zone. Because during the cycle, the ink would have moved along this little glassine tube. And so you can look at the, at the strip here and see if it's in a safe zone or accept zone. It is analogous to spore testing. And so that would indicate it was a good sterilization cycle. It is not, it is not, it is not a substitute for weekly biological monitoring. Biological monitoring is still your gold standard. But this gives you a good indication that you had a good sterilization cycle. So you don't have to have so all of a sudden uh, some panic because you suddenly got a positive spore test that, that did, you know, where the sterilizer cycle failed, but you didn't know when it happened from the last week when you did the test. If you do this, make sure that you write this up as part of your standard operating procedures. Make sure that everybody in the practice knows about it. And it's there. It's there. And then when somebody comes in and says, oh, how do you, how do you know your sterilizer is working today? You only test it once a week. Funny you should ask. We do this for each cycle. There it is. And I've seen so many of you out there doing this now. Congratulations. When you look at how sterilization cycles fail, the overwhelming majority of sterilization cycle failures are due to human error. Uh, we did studies many years ago looking at hundreds of sterilizers over the course of a year um, from school. Uh, other studies have been even uh, better than this. And uh, at that point, over 85% sterilization cycle failures were due to human error. So those of you who are listening to this who are in charge of sterilization in your practice, you are so important. You can make or break what goes on at chair side by providing instruments, of course, that meet the criteria for sterilization. <laughs>